I was doing a lot of undercover work, and I ended up purchasing 10 kilos of cocaine on the street as an undercover officer. I think it still is the largest hand-to-hand -hand undercover drug deal in Aurora's history. So every narcotics deal that I went to, I was always nervous. I had a lot of training um, and a lot of experience as I did more undercover deals, but the nervousness of it kept me on my toes and I think kept me safe because I was a little bit more alert of my surroundings. I think law enforcement in general, you get a little bit of cynicism. I think it gets a little bit more intense when you enter the undercover world. There's a lot of bad and negativity that you just constantly see on a daily basis. I always viewed people probably at their worst. I grew up in a private Catholic school as a little kid, got married young, knew about God, knew there's a God, but really never was involved in the church. My youngest son, Brandon, I remember he asked his mom one day, hey, why don't we go to church? And we're like, you want to go to church? We'll go. So we started going to Chapel Street. I think I was just at that point just attending church. I, I knew there's a God. I believed in God. It turned for me very seriously about three years ago. Our family went through a very personal trying time where I think it tested all our faith. That's when I made the decision of completely surrendering to God and saying, I am no longer in control. Whatever you have to do, you have to do, and I have to accept that. It wasn't an easy road. It took a lot of prayer, a lot of crying, a lot of just humbling yourself and saying, whatever has to happen, you're in control, I am not. Well, it wasn't easy getting from not trusting anybody, doing it all myself, to trusting God completely. Those are real and are still real struggles for me, is trusting people because of the way I was trained in the police world and the narcotics world. So we went on a hiking trip with my youngest son and we were only supposed to hike a few miles. We ended up hiking a total of 10 miles, got lost, it was starting to get dark. We get to the end of the trail and we're looking for some help because we are exhausted. We're beat down. We got no water, no food. And I go into my police mode because I need help now. And I'm scanning the parking lot. Who can help me? And there was a gentleman that I looked at that right away I'm like, eh, I'm not even going to ask him, right? Because I already I had a little checklist in my head of things that he didn't check off. Well, that gentleman walks over eventually to where we're at and he says, it looks like you need some help. My name is Elijah. My wife's name is Mary. And I just start inside laughing and I looked up and I'm like, you have a sense of humor, God. Because not only do you send help, it's got to be somebody named Mary and Elijah. <laughs> he was our ticket out of the problem. He took us where we needed to go to and yet, I didn't want to ask him for help because of the checklist I was going through from my prior experiences. Shame on me. But that's when I saw God working. He's telling me, this is what you're praying for. 
I put somebody to help you that doesn't fit the mold you're looking for because of your cynicism. And just so you know, this is an open door. His name is going to be Elijah, so you don't have any questions. <laughs> Knowing what I was working for and praying for and struggling with, I'm 100% sure this was God answering one of my prayers saying, keep doing what you're doing because you have to trust me. You have to be obedient. So I retired after 26 years of service. I'm really enjoying my, my uh, retirement, not only because I, I get to spend time with my family and see them grow, but this amazing journey that I'm going through myself with God. I have to wake up every morning, just humble myself and say, what am I gonna do for you today? I think what God is really trying to teach me now is that I need to continue to walk in faith even though I cannot see. And that's my favorite verse in 2 Corinthians. It's great when we get to do those stories together as a church and just kind of see the stories of people in our own family, what God's doing, how he's moving in their life. And what I love about Alfredo's story is it's really, a, it's the story that's at the heart of this whole series of the way of Jesus because it's a story about trust. It's a story about putting your trust in the God that uh, isn't always easy to see, isn't always to f easy to follow, uh, but knowing in your heart that he is the one that cares for you best, that his way is good. And so... Uh, it's great just to see what God's doing in Alfredo's life. Just so you know, he's uh, gone from being a guy that struggles to trust anyone uh, to being a guy now that's going to be joining Pastor Bruce in Cuba on a missions trip in 10 days uh, to do all kinds of different things. I mean, who would have expected that God would take someone from over here to a completely different place? That's what the way of Jesus does. So we're going to keep uh, kind of going through this series together, looking at the way. And this week, we're talking about the way of service. Uh, and I wanted to start by throwing up an image of someone here that hopefully one or two of you will know. How many of you know who this is? Okay, we've got a few. Yeah, this is Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe is the host of a Discovery Channel show called Daddy Jobs. Uh, if you don't know Mike, you've probably heard of this show because it is the story of Mike traveling through different professions all over the U.S. that are considered gross and uh, undoable or unwantable. And so he goes around all these different locations. Uh, he's done things from uh, cleaning out the grime on the inside of a water tower, where there's all unimaginable gross things that grow that we don't see, uh, to being a concrete chipper, where he had to crawl inside an extremely kind of claustrophobic space and uh, chip off all the concrete get that gets stuck on the inside of a mixing drum. Uh, and my favorite, although I've never watched the episode, is uh, Sewer Inspector. I, and the reason I've never watched it is because this is his description. Aside from sloshing through a relentless chocolate tide, inspectors encounter a myriad of man-made products that shouldn't be flushed down toilets, along with roaches the size of thumbs and rats the size of bread loaves. It's hot, dirty, and too smelly to describe. So great. Sounds good. Sounds good. Mike dives into those kind of jobs over and over again. He does the dirty jobs that no one else wants to do. Uh, and he uh, he's even done so well that he's jumped back into the series after taking a break when the pandemic was going on to kind of recognize and honor essential workers who are doing all these kind of tasks that we don't think about. Uh, and there's something very fascinating about a guy like Mike Rowe. Because even though we don't want to do the jobs he does, we want to watch him do them. We want to be a part of his stories doing them. Not only, I think, personally, because of morbid fascination, but because somewhere inside of Mike Rowe and what he's doing is this story of greatness uh, 
this echo of greatness that we all want to be a part of, that we all want to experience. We see someone in Mike who's willing to do the hard work, who's willing to bring himself low, to do something that's blessing other people, to do what everybody else doesn't want to do. And this week, our preaching team was meeting. We were talking about the way of Jesus and these different sermons we've done. And Pastor Sterling uh, said something that was so profound but so simple. He said, to be like Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus is to always be moving towards the mess. Because that's what Jesus did. He always moved towards the mess. And in fact, in the early church, when these group of early Christians were called the people of the way, they were known as being people that would move towards the mess in all these different areas. Eusebius, who's a uh, historian, writes this about the early Christian church. He says, all day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. And then this is what the last uh, pagan Roman emperor said about the Christians. And now keep in mind that this is a guy who does not like Christians, a guy called uh, Julian the Apostate. And he said, when it came to the poor who were neglected and overlooked, uh, then the impious Galileans, the Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. So this Roman leader was saying the Christians are doing a better job of taking care of our poor and oppressed and, and belabored than we are. And everybody can see it that this church loves the broken and the destitute better than their own leaders. I wonder whether we today embody those values as well as they did in the beginning. Whether the world would see in us what that Roman emperor saw in the early church. This morning, I want to look at an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples towards the end of his life where he teaches about this idea of service and of how crucial it is to the way of Jesus. Let me read this to you. This is from Luke's gospel, chapter 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The way of Jesus is the way of service. And so to follow Jesus, to be a people of the way, we must be as dedicated as he was and as the church was to service. So to help us think through this this morning, I want to look at three things that comes up from this passage, three things that it can stir up in our hearts. First is the way of the world, then the way of the kingdom, and then finally the way of God's son. Let's talk about the way of the world, the way of the world. Now, uh, you may not know this, maybe you do, and you're going to be depressed either way. One of the top desired professions now amongst young people is to be an influencer. How many of you even know what I'm talking about? It's, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. So there was a, a survey done recently. 2,000 young Americans aged 13 to 38. So that's a pretty, pretty wide range of ages. And out of those people surveyed, 86% of young Americans surveyed, so people between 13 to 38, said that they were willing to try out influencing on their social media platforms. And 12% of young people said that they already considered themselves an influencer. Ooh, hoo, hoo. 
they, uh, social media star has become the fourth most popular career aspiration for kids. An influencer even made the shortlist in 2019 for word of the year in a UK dictionary. That's why I left my country. Influencers who've made it big on YouTube or Instagram for their engaging personalities can amass enormous social clout, not to mention big books. This is where I might get interested. So there is a YouTube video game commentator called PewDiePie, <laughs> which is a ridiculous name, who has roughly 102 million subscribers and raked in $15.5 million last year from doing what? Sitting and playing video games and recording himself doing it. $15.5 million from doing that. There, is child, there are children now that this is what they aspire to. I want to kind of live my life in view of other people. And when they see me and they see the things that I do, that they would be influenced by that and that they would follow me. And I think that the way of the world is to think of leadership, to think of greatness that way. To view it as privilege and power and influence and recognition. And the truth is, is that these are definitions and these are ideas of greatness and leadership that don't have a place in the way of Jesus. They don't fit. At the start of this conversation that Jesus is having, uh, he says this. He says a dispute arose amongst them, and they're asking this question, which of us are going to be considered the greatest? And Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So Jesus gets into a conversation about what are the leaders of this world like? What, what do the people in this world think greatness is? Now, I want to back up for a second because we're launching right into the middle of a moment that is, is really serious. There's a lot of other things going on. Luke 22 is dead in the middle of the Last Supper. So this is a somber meal that Jesus is having. And in fact, the front half of Luke 22, he's talked about how he's going to be betrayed. He's, been, he's talking about how he's going to die and how he's going to suffer. And the Gospels kind of disagree on when exactly this happened, but all of them agree it was in the last week of Jesus' life that some conversation arose amongst the disciples about which one was the greatest. Now, can you think of a more inappropriate time to ask Jesus which one of us is the best when he's telling you he's about to suffer and die? It's like he sat there saying, I'm about to go to the most awful moment of my life, and they say, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, but which of us is the best? Which of us is the coolest? You know, maybe we could, uh, we could cut them a break. Maybe they're not thinking of it the way that we just described it there. Maybe they're just confused. They hear Jesus saying that he's going to leave. Maybe they're wondering, well, who's going to be in charge after he leaves? Which one of us is going to get to run the show once he's gone? But no matter which way we go to try and explain why they would ask a question like this, it all comes down to revealing one thing, that they have a deep misunderstanding about the way of Jesus. No matter why they're asking the question, they shouldn't be asking it at all. It exposes something in them. See, Jesus has a radically different definition of greatness and leadership than the rest of the world. A different definition of greatness. Now, why would they, why would they think like this? Well, because this is the only pattern of leadership and greatness that they've ever seen. is emperors and politicians around them who were built on things like power and privilege and influence. And so it's, Totally understandable that as their movement grows, as their rabbi becomes more famous, they think that that's what they're headed towards, power and privilege and influence. And Jesus, he even kind of talks about these Gentile kings. He uses them as an example, and he says that they lord it over them, and they call themselves benefactors. 
Now, that little word benefactors there, it's a Greek word. It's a title that used to be applied to political leaders who kind of saw themselves as the benefactors of society. People who were higher in the social hierarchy, who would look down on people beneath them, and they would supply aid to them, but only as it benefited them. So a benefactor would be the kind of uh, Roman senator who would speak on behalf of a certain group of people, but only if they were supplying them with money or supplying them with political clout, something like that. That never happens in our day, does it? And Jesus has said, that's what they behave like. That's the way that their world operates. Benefactors. People who only serve the ones who benefit them. People who only serve the ones that bring them some kind of emotional, financial, or social payoff. People who help them climb the ladder. And it even starts when we're children. It's way down deep in our nature. I'm thinking about my kids. We're coming up on Halloween, and I know exactly what's going to happen on October 31st. We're going to go out. We're going to fill a pillowcase or a giant bucket full of candy. We're going to get home, they're going to dump, and as soon as one of the kids sees that the other one got one single piece of candy in theirs that they didn't, they're going to forget that they've got their own bucket and just say, but they, they got that one. I want to have that one because they've got that one and I want to have that one. That's what happens in our hearts. We see it in kids, but even as we get older, we are constantly playing a game of comparison. We're asking ourselves, are we in a better position than them? Do we have more than them? Do we have more influence? Do we have more recognition? Do we have more meaning? Do we have more greatness? And Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't play that game. Confront that part of your heart that wants to play that game. Because that's not my way. And it's not just a definition of greatness. It's a different definition of leadership. Because who are the people he's having this conversation with? The people who he's going to leave the church to. He's saying, I don't want you to be like them because it doesn't fit with my kingdom. And I need you guys to be the representatives of that kingdom. If you do want to take over after me, if you really do want to be great, then you're going to have to understand that we can't be like the rest of the world. But unfortunately, that was a struggle even after Jesus' resurrection, that the church still struggled with this broken idea of greatness. This is from a letter in the New Testament called uh, Third John, a very short letter written by uh, Jesus' good friend John. And he's writing to a church, and this is what he says. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. How would you like to be that guy? You've made it into the Bible, but not for a good reason. (laughs) Diotrephes, this church leader, and you know what he was known for? He was known for putting himself first. That even though he was a shepherd, he was a pastor, he was supposed to be taking care of a group of people who were seeking to follow Jesus, he was always putting himself first. This same broken idea of leadership and greatness was leaking into the church, even at its inception. Jesus knew how dangerous it was, how easy it would be to undo what he had launched the church to do. Even today we struggle in churches. We get sucked into this kind of stream of self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement where we, we measure the size of our churches. How many people are coming to our church? How many events do we get to put on? What's the size of our budget? And we compare and ask, which church is the greatest? Which body of believers is the best? And suddenly, we're very rarely when we're looking at that question, are we asking questions about, well, how many churches are serving their neighbors? How, many, how much of their budget is going outside of their own walls? We've got to bring our broken view of greatness and leadership to the cross. 
Because did you know that everyone in this room is a leader? All of you. You are leading someone somewhere towards something. You might not be a CEO, you might not be a pastor, you might not be a politician, but your life is leading the people around you. It might be your children, it might be your spouse, it might be your neighbors or your co-workers, it might even be others in this church family, but in one way or another, you are portraying a definition of greatness and leadership to someone. And the question is, what are you leading them towards? The way of Jesus or the way of the world? Are you teaching comparison and self-advancement or service? See, if we don't consider it carefully, we will always drift towards the way of the world. Whether we want to or not, without Christ left to our default nature, we will drift towards self-exaltation, self-establishment, self-comfort. And you know what the real tragedy of that is? Is that, that way of living will leave you feeling empty and always wondering, are you enough? Why do you think the disciples were asking that question? Which one of us is the greatest? You know what was beneath that somewhere in their hearts? Jesus, am I enough? Are you really happy with me? Am I doing a good job? They didn't know. They didn't understand that they had a meaning apart from their status around the people. Their influence amongst the people. So we need to climb off the ladder. Stop comparing ourselves to those around us and ask if we are in a better position because Jesus has a better way and that's the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom. Now definitions matter. Definitions are important. For example, a few months ago, Pastor Jeff asked me if I would like to go work out with him. And I had a definition in my mind of what a workout would look like. And Pastor Jeff had a definition of what a workout would look like. They were not the same. I showed up at his garage, uh, and apparently Jeff Frazier moonlights as the Incredible Hulk because he was doing things that I didn't know human beings were capable of, uh, and he was inviting me to join in, him, in with him, and I could not keep pace with him, and I wanted to desperately. I wanted to go with him, but my definition of a workout was way different, and what I could do is way different. In a similar way, my wife's definition of going for a run is way different than my definition of going for a run. Me going for a run is up and down the stairs. There we go. I'm done. Janae's definition is to run eight miles, and she's full of life when she does it. She's so relaxed when she does it. So here's the point is we have to be careful whose definition we're operating on. When we're talking about greatness, when we're talking about leadership, and when we're talking about service, whose definition are we working from? This is Jesus' definition in Luke 22. You are not to be like those kings of the Gentiles. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus is saying, you're not to be like the rest of this world. You're not to operate the way that those Gentile kings do. You're not to seek greatness in the way that they do. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say seeking greatness is a bad thing. He just says, you've got to be careful how you do it. He doesn't say, I don't want you to be great at all. He says, I want you to have the right greatness. I want you to pursue the right greatness. And here's how you do it. You turn away from yourself. Philippians 2, 3, a verse that I learned when I was a kid, says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I remember learning that verse because I was a young Christian, I was new to the church, uh, and I was being mentored by a guy uh, who invited me to join him in helping someone in our church move. And this person lived uh, in an apartment that was three floors up 
and it had a spiral staircase. So it wasn't kind of straight. Yeah, see, you're joining me in it. Uh, and so it, I, I walked in there. Uh, I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to save. But man, I was frustrated within about five minutes because it was so much hard work. And there was only the two of us, me and this guy who'd been mentoring me. And what he told me is, I want you, as we're moving things down the spiral staircase, I want you to repeat this verse to yourself. Do nothing in selfish ambition or conceit, but in everything through lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than yourself. That's why we're here. We're going to turn away from ourselves and help someone else who needs it. True greatness is not preoccupied with personal visibility or comfort or convenience or recognition. And so what we need to do is we need to examine our motives closely about the things that we do in our lives. Are we serving others for ourselves or for them? Think through your time in prayer this week. Think through the way that you've spent your hours this week. How much of it was spent on you? How much of it was spent on preserving the things that help you feel better about your position? The real tragedy for these disciples that are having this conversation with Jesus that he understands and they don't is that their preoccupation with themselves is blinding them to what God is doing right there in front of them. It's enslaving them. Can you imagine being at the Last Supper? Being at what is one of the most holy moments in human history and you don't even see it happening because you're too worried about what your own status is. The Son of God is there before you sharing the culmination of centuries and centuries of God's work. You don't even see it. An over-concern for yourself blinds you. And what is it that you might be missing in your own life right now that God is trying to speak to you, trying to work in you? What opportunities is God bringing your way that you're completely oblivious to because your mind and your heart is so focused on what's happening for you? Paul Tripp has this brilliant quote that I had to share with you this morning where he talks about the grace of God inviting us to abandon ourselves. He says, in calling me to deny myself, God is freeing me from my bondage to me. Self-focus never leads to happiness. It never produces contentment. It never results in a satisfied heart. The more a leader has himself in focus, the more he thinks about how ministry inconveniences him and the less he'll experience true joy and lasting contentment. The call to servanthood is the tool that your Lord uses to free you from your discouraging and debilitating bondage to yourself. God loves you so much that he wants to free you from bondage to yourself because he knows better than you how miserable it will make you. We also have to turn towards others. The way of the kingdom is not only to turn away from self, but to turn towards others. The second half of Philippians 2.3 says, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. It's not just a, a change in what we're doing. It's a change in mindset. See, the way of service in God's kingdom is so difficult because God is not just saying, do nice things for people. He's saying, in your heart, think of them as better than yourself. Desire good for them. Long for good for them. The way of the kingdom sees others' needs as more significant. So what are the needs around us? I don't know. But don't you want to find out? Don't you want to find out that even in this room this morning, there are undoubtedly needs? There are certainly needs. I know of a few of them. 
We have the privilege of sharing in life with some of you and, and hearing the things that burden you, the things that you're struggling with. But what would happen if all of us in this room became as dedicated together towards seeing one another's need and esteeming one another as better than ourselves? Can you imagine the things that would get covered, the burdens that would be carried, the pains that might be comforted? If we would see others faster than we see ourselves. I'm gonna share with you one of my least favorite things to hear in church. And if you've ever said this to me, I apologize and I love you. But I can't stand when I come to church and someone is deciding whether they should go to the church or not based on whether or not they get fed. Have you ever heard this phrase before? I'm going there because I want to be fed. Or I've stopped going there because I just didn't really feel fed. Because what I hear behind that is this understanding that church is something that exists for you, and it doesn't. Church exists so that you can go live out God's calling on your life amongst his people, to serve others, to love others. I am not at all saying that church isn't a place where you can come and your burdens can be met and that you can be loved and cared for. It absolutely is. Of course, I want you to be fed here. I want you to be nourished by God's word. I want you to be loved, but I don't want you to stop there. I don't want the foundation of your relationship with our church to be, I'm coming here because it feels good for me. Because the truth is, it won't always feel good for you. There'll be weeks where the sermon is lackluster, where you're feeling down, it's been a hard week, you're tired, you don't want to be here. And if your basis for being in a relationship with a church is whether or not it feels good for you, I promise you, you will end up leaving for one reason or another. And you'll lose a community that loves you. But if you commit and say, I'm devoted here because God has called me to serve his body and I'm here for him, I promise you, you will meet God. You will meet him. Lastly, we've got to have an ambition for Christ. We turn away from ourselves, we turn towards others, but we also have to have an ambition for Christ. We've got to think about what furthers the kingdom in my immediate sphere of influence. Paul said in his letters to the Corinthians, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. The great Christian thinker I've begun listening to, his name is John Dixon, has a great podcast called Undeceptions, but he's wrote several books as well. Uh, and in one of them, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, he says that the early Christians didn't just proclaim the gospel, they promoted the gospel. When Paul says, I've made myself a servant of all that I might win them all, what he's saying is, he didn't just preach a message, but he's, he's changing the way that he's relating to other people because he wants them to see Christ in him. He wants to serve as many people as he can so that they would get a picture of Jesus. When you serve, people will get more of Jesus. And Paul's saying something really remarkable in this when he says, though that he's, uh, I'm free from all, he's saying, I don't have an obligation to serve. I'm not doing it to buy brownie points with God. He loves me in Christ apart from what I do. I'm doing it because I want other people to experience that same love. Because I want them to engage with the God who loves them apart from what they do. And that should be our deepest desire that through the giving of our time and our talents and our gifts, that someone else might get a glimpse of Jesus. They might experience a grace that they are desperate for. They might have a thirst satisfied that they have been carrying for years. Paul was so captured by Jesus' love for him that he wanted to go give it to someone else. Are we captured by Jesus' love in the same way? Or do we hoard it for ourselves? 
Lastly, I want to just talk about the way of God's son real quickly. The way of God's son. We've talked about the way of the world, the way of the kingdom, the way of God's son. Let me read this quote to you from a book called The Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. He's recounting the story of King Leonidas and the Brave 300. And he has this brilliant quote in there. He says, I will tell his majesty what a king is. A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry, nor sleep when they stand watch at the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear, nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pains he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of those he leads, but provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. That's Jesus Christ. He finishes this conversation with the disciples by saying, Who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. He goes on to say in the next few verses that this is my table. You may eat and drink at my table. You know what Jesus is saying to those disciples as they bicker over who's the greatest? He says, do you understand? I am true greatness and here I am serving you. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. There are galaxies that you can't even conceive exist and I put them then. And here I am now at a table with you, serving you. True greatness come into their midst to serve them. And did he just do the impressive jobs, the easy jobs, the convenient jobs, the influential jobs? When this meal started, Jesus did something radical that we're told about in John 13. John 13 verses 1 through 5 says this, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, so Judas is still at that table, his own betrayer, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured a water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want to help you understand this morning how shocking what Jesus has just done is. It might even be worth saying that it's offensive to some of the people of his day. Jesus is sat in a room with his disciples and he takes off his outer garments. He undresses so that him, an adult man, an adult Jewish rabbi is now undressed in front of his own disciples. Very embarrassing. And then he begins washing their feet. Now, I want you to understand, they don't sit at tables like us. They would have sat at a table that's flat on the ground and everybody would be laying on their side, laying on the ground, which means that Jesus, to wash their feet, is crawling on his hands and knees around a table of men who have disgusting feet, dirty feet, that they've been walking around in sandals all day. You know that some rabbis would say that it's not even the duty of any Jewish person to wash another person's feet because it's so unclean let alone the rabbi, the teacher, the one who's supposed to be the person of honor. And yet here is Jesus getting on his hands and knees to serve his disciples. 
The Gospels are littered with accounts of Jesus physically and socially bringing himself low to serve others, touching people that no one else would touch, spending time with people that had been rejected, doing dirty, difficult jobs. That by itself would be enough. But think about the cosmic service that Jesus is doing. The scale of his service far exceeds any possible service that you would ever do with your life. Philippians 2, the verse that we've mentioned every single week of this series, because it's so good at capturing the way of Jesus, says this. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God of heaven emptied himself, never once thought what he deserved as God, what was rightfully his as God. He made himself a servant to everyone, even the people who hated him and rejected him and despised him, and even the people who would later this day crucify him. He served them. Jesus is on his way down the ladder while we're all trying to climb up. You know what the gift of true greatness is? He's inviting you to join him in that. He is asking you, frail as you are, broken as you are, weak as you are, to come and join him in true greatness. Jesus wants us to avoid momentary nice things and to join him in a lifestyle of service that will change who we are and that will reflect his kingdom. Being like Jesus, as Pastor Stelling said, is like moving towards the mess at all times, however you can. It might be a person, it might be an opportunity, it might be inconvenient, it might even be painful, but it is where you will find the living God. Where in your life is it inconvenient to serve? Where is it difficult or lowly? Where might you even think that it's beneath you? Where is someone surprised that you would be willing to do what no one else will? Take some time this week to really consider these questions. Get a journal, set aside some hours, and ask yourself, where is it? It won't necessarily come easy to answer that question, but it's worth pursuing. It's worth spending time and dedicating and saying, where might this be for me? Because God's inviting you to join him in what he is doing in the world. I want you and I want our church to be as passionate about finding where we can serve as Jesus is as passionate about serving. Don't miss the opportunity you have to go and join him in what Jesus considers the honor of his life. The, the, the Bible says that it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Jesus genuinely takes joy in serving you, by the way. It's not beneath him. If it's not beneath him, it's not beneath you. And if you are struggling with this idea of Jesus as one who serves you, and you haven't come to know this one who serves you, and you're asking yourself as we're talking about this, I don't know this man. I want you to know that I am here and we'll have a prayer team here at the end of the service. I want to pray with you because I want you to meet him. I want you to meet the one who serves you, who loves you, who gave himself for you. I challenge you to come and see the king who serves at the feet of his own servants. I want you to know him. 
and I want you to join him on his mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to be set free from ourselves and to join you in service. We confess it's hard for us. We confess that we're so trapped in the way of the world of self-exaltation and self-comfort and self-advancement. Father, help us. Help us to see what it is that you're inviting us into, Lord. It's something beautiful. It's something good. It's something that will fill that empty gnawing on us that says, are we enough? Are we enough? Help us, Lord, to see you as the king who even though you were God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laid yourself down. Lord, may your church lay ourselves down for the sake of our neighbors, that they might get a glimpse of you as we have. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I just want to thank you for joining us for worship today. I hope that you were blessed. I hope that you have experienced the grace of God here. Uh, as a reminder, we have a prayer team up front. You are more than welcome to come down. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you any way we can. Uh, and I want to leave us with this thought. Pastor Sterling gave another great nugget this week to me. He said that service is not a gesture, it's a posture. So let's cling to it. Let's seek that posture in the weeks ahead as we continue through the way of Jesus. Let's not lose sight of this way of service. But now let me leave you with today's benediction. May we go in the name of the God who set aside heaven to serve us who made himself a servant of all, may we follow him and make ourselves a servant to all that they might see his great love. It's in Christ's name that we go. Amen. Jesus, you have spoken.